If you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. Colossians is in the New Testament, so the back quarter of your Bible. If you go past the Gospels and Acts and Romans and the letters to the Corinthians, you'll come to Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. That's what we'll be reading from this morning. Um, And I stole the scripture reading from the liturgist who would normally read it, so I could say a couple of words of introduction first. My name is Eric, and it is nice to meet you. I know that some of you are visiting here with graduates or other people, or I haven't had the chance to meet you, but this is our, uh, my wife Elizabeth's in the front row, so our um, first Sunday um, in the saddle as we're stepping in as pastor, which is actually a weird analogy because it makes it sound like Kishwaukee is a wild bull, which is not at all (laughs) um, how we feel. We felt very welcomed, and we're so glad um, to meet you and look forward to getting the chance to get to know you better. It's been just a joy already to just see the love that so many of you have for each other and for the church here. Um, Donald Miller, I remember commenting once that the best way to learn to love something is to watch somebody else loving it, and we've certainly already um, felt that growing in our hearts. And then secondly, just a word, um, over the next couple of months we're going to be preaching through the book of Colossians, um, which... um, I tell you first so that you can just be reading along there. If you sit down with your Bible and feel like reading the Bible and think to yourself, where in the world should I read today? Um, it's a, I'd welcome you to, to read along with us. Um, you can point out errors that I make that way. Um, but Colossians, in many ways, is a great place to start um, our life together as we examine God's Word and start thinking and growing together as a church. In the book of Colossians, Paul is writing first to this church that he's never been to in person. Um, He's never actually gotten to be there and worship with them and see them in person. And he's writing to this church that is being tempted to abandon the kind of foundational first things of the gospel. And those facts mean that it's a great starting place um, because rather than start, then Paul talking about kind of specific issues that this church is dealing with or specific things that he's worked through already in some ways with them, this letter is focused on the core things of what it means to be a Christian and to be the church. And so in Colossians, Paul's main aim is to put the first things first for this church in Colossae. And I feel like that's just a great opportunity for us as well as we begin life together to seek to put the first things first. But with that said, let's read God's word. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who was a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord, 
and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our God and Father, what a privilege it is to hear you speak to us, that you would come in your word to meet with us, to instruct us, to grow us, to show us your love. I pray that you would be all with all of us sinners as we sit under it, that we might be attentive to it. Be with me a sinner as I preach it. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Churches can be known for all kinds of things. All kinds of things. And of course, yeah, they're the bad things, right? You know, that they could be known for being divisive or unfriendly or gossipful or empty of the spirit. But, but I don't mean those things, um, hopefully. <laughs> uh, rather, I mean the kinds of things that you hear people talk about when they're discussing different churches. You know, man, we might say, that church has a great praise team or a beautiful building or a clever preacher, or wonderful kids' programs, or smoke machines, or great video, or effective neighborhood outreach, or any one of a hundred other assets. When we talk about churches, our own and others, we often use those things that churches are kind of known for as a shorthand to, to show what we're talking about. Churches can be known for all kinds of things. And that isn't bad in and of itself. Those are wonderful things except maybe smoke machines. But, but beautiful music and a nice facility and good programs, those are all good things. It's not a problem that we might note them when we're talking about different churches. But the problem is it can be easy for us to focus on those things churches are known for, those surface-level things, in a way that can distract us from the really important stuff. Because you can have none of those things I listed. You can meet in a barn with a couple families and no programs and some 16-year-old playing the only three chords he knows on a guitar. You can do that and you can be a church. You can have none of those things and be the church. Or you can have all of those things. You can have um, elaborate buildings and slick Sunday productions and administration that's humming like a well-oiled machine and still be a place where Jesus is never discussed and the Spirit isn't active. All of those things are great assets for a church to have, but none of them actually make it a church. Paul is writing this letter to a church in the city of Colossae. And like we said, this is a church that Paul himself has never visited. Instead, he has a friend named Epaphras, who's mentioned in our reading this morning, who appears to be a pastor of the church. And through Epaphras, Paul has heard about the church, both its struggles and its strength. He's heard about what it's known for and is writing as an apostle to both challenge and encourage them. And as in all of his letters, Paul starts off with this greeting to the Colossians that we read this morning. In this greeting, he both gives thanks for some things he has heard about them, and he offers prayers about ways that he hopes that they can grow. He chooses to praise certain things the Colossian church is known for and pray they, that they might be even more known for certain things. And this is important because the things that Paul chooses to focus on are not like the things that we mentioned earlier. He doesn't give thanks 
for the fancy corner of the catacombs that they're meeting in, or the really great tibia player that they have on the worship team, or I don't know what a first century version of a video projector is, but, but he doesn't focus on those things. Instead, the things Paul gives thanks for and the things he encourages the church to grow in are more foundational, more basic. He's praying for the things, not that set them apart from other churches in the area, but that make them the church. He's praying that they would be known for the things that make them the church. And so as we begin life together, and as we start to think together about our future as a church, it seems only fitting that we'd spend some time thinking about these things as well, about the things that we should be praying that we are ultimately known for. What are those things? Well, basically, in this greeting, Paul tells us three things that he's praying for. Paul prays that we might be known for our faith and for our love and for our hope. Our faith and our love and our hope. Let's look at each of those in turn. First, Paul gives thanks for the Colossians' faith. Look at verse 3 and 4. He says, We always give thanks for the faith that you have in Jesus Christ. And that, of course, means on some level that Paul's just giving thanks that the Colossians are Christians, right? That they believe in Jesus, as we would say it. Um, That they've put their trust in him as their Savior and Lord. But Paul means more than just that in the way he talks about it in this prayer. In our world, we can talk about faith in the abstract. We can say that someone is a person of faith. We can tell someone who's struggling that they just got to have faith and not really have much of a sense of what exactly we think they should be having faith in. I think we can treat faith like that, that it's just this kind of indefinable thing that you've got in your gut. But when Paul uses faith, he means something more. It is faith in Jesus Christ, as he puts it in verse 4. Not just faith in the abstract, but in Jesus Christ. He makes that clearer in verse 6. It's the gospel that comes to the Colossians, and they heard it and truly understood God's grace in it. That that was faith. Faith means believing certain things about the world that come from the gospel and center around Jesus. Faith is believing and trusting that certain things are true. I think we get more of a sense of that when we talk about, in our world, something like the faith or the Christian faith. Ancient Rome, where Paul lives and his hearers live, is a world where lots of people have faith. They have faith in the Roman gods, they have faith in the emperor, they have faith in weird religions from Egypt and the east. What set apart the Colossians is that in the face of these competing beliefs, they have chosen to make Jesus Christ and the truth that surrounds him and his work the center of their lives, rather than something else. And it is this faith, this belief in the truths of Christ, that is one of the things Paul also prays for the Colossians to have more of. If you look at verse 9, he says, We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. The first part of Paul's prayer to Jesus is that the Colossians would grow in this faith that they have, that they would know more of it, that they would have more wisdom from it, that their understanding of it would deepen, that the Colossians would have their beliefs about what is true shaped more and more by God's truth, rather than the stories around them in the world. And so our first prayer as a church should be the same as Paul's. We should pray that we are a people set apart by our belief in Jesus, and that we would grow more and more in our knowledge and understanding and wisdom of what that belief means. 
And look, that doesn't mean that we should be a church full of theologians or bookish people. Frankly, that would make for a really miserable church. Um, And I say that as someone who in some ways is called to do those things. And it doesn't mean that we should be a church full of head knowledge, as we say it, right? And lacking in passion or practical action. As we'll see in just a minute, that faith is supposed to work itself out in love. But we can use those objections to avoid the fact that according to the Bible, part of growing up into Jesus, part of being the church, means growing to know and understand more about him. Not becoming an expert, but growing. I mean, here's the thing. Our world is not faith neutral. It's not faith neutral. It is a world full of beliefs that are contrary to the Christian faith. And I don't just mean the stuff that you hear people talk about in philosophy classes in college, right? I mean beliefs like money can make you happy. Beliefs like pleasure is the ultimate purpose of your life. Beliefs like you are a radically free person who gets to make up whatever definition of yourself and the universe you want. There are stories and worldviews and belief systems all around us, and the only way to stay a Christian, to be a Christian, is to grow in knowledge and wisdom and understanding until we can name those things as wrong and profess the truth of Jesus instead. Practically, what does that mean for us? It means that as a church, we need to seek to grow in the faith. It means training up our kids in what it is that Christians believe in deep and thorough ways. It means learning those same things for ourselves. It means studying the Bible and trying to really to learn and then to believe what it says. It means thinking and reflecting, maybe even sometimes reading about how to pray and how to think and how to live and work and talk and play in the world. Think of it this way. We all recognize that there are certain facts and values and stories that inform what it means to be an American, right? Even if you didn't pay a lot of attention in your, in your social studies class, you know the basics of who George Washington and Abraham Lincoln are. You know there was a revolutionary war and a civil war, and probably you could name at least some of the stuff that's in the Constitution. And more deeply, you believe in certain values, like a democratically elected government and free speech, we have whole classes in school that are meant to teach kids these truths, right? We, when someone wants to become an American citizen, we give them this test that we probably couldn't even pass um, that, that's asking them questions about those stories and beliefs and values. And we do all of that because we recognize that there are certain things we believe and value that define what it is to be an American, beliefs that shape us and form us as a nation. And the same thing is true of Christianity. There are certain facts and values and stories that should shape us as Christians. Facts and values and stories that run counter to the world around us and that all of us have to stand on and grow up into if we're going to live lives as God's people. Our calling is to learn those facts and values and stories and meditate on them and teach them to others to grow in faith. So Paul's telling us that one of the things the church should be known for is their belief in the faith of Jesus Christ, that they're set apart by these things they believe. But like we said, this faith is not meant to be just a dead set of beliefs either. It's belief in the truths of the living God, truths that are supposed to change us. And for Paul, the primary way that they change us is by calling us to love. We should be known as well for our love. In verse 4, Paul also gives thanks for the love that the Colossians have for all of God's people. Paul's encouragement 
in verse 8 is that Epaphras has told us of your love in the Spirit. If the foundation of the church in Colossae is their faith, the fruit of that faith is their love. Love for Paul is the great activity that should characterize Christianity. By love, of course, Paul doesn't just mean nice feelings. When he talks about love, he means love embodied. He means treating people well. He means serving them. He means acting towards them in ways that help their interests rather than our own. And Paul is encouraged that the Colossians are known for their love. And he prays that the Colossians would grow in this love. In verse 10, he prays that they would grow and live a life worthy of the Lord. Live a life worthy of the Lord. And I think when you hear that, you can think that he just means kind of an, a moral life, an obedient life. And I'm all for morality and obedience, but that phrase for Paul probably doesn't mean that. He uses it one other place in Ephesians 4.1, um, that live a life worthy phrase. But there he fleshes out what that means, and what living a life worthy of the Lord means, he says there, is to be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So Paul is praying that the Colossians would grow in gentleness and kindness and patience, and that they'd put up with each other, that they would work hard to keep unity and be at peace with each other, that they would love each other. That's probably why Paul also talks about bearing fruit in every good work a little later in verse 10. What's the fruit he's talking about? I mean, Galatians 5 tells us the fruit the Holy Spirit gives, which includes love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, which are all ways that we treat each other. For Paul, loving is the core thing the church is meant to be doing. And so love should be something that our church is known for as well. Love, which is one of those things that is deeply true and profound, but so general that if you just say that, it can be kind of meaningless, right? You could preach a hundred different sermons about what it actually means that we should be a people known by love, for, for love. But this morning we have this one, so let me offer one thing I've been reflecting on about love um, in our world, in this modern American Midwestern kind of world that we live in, and what it would mean for us to grow in that. I think it can be easy for us to confuse love with mere friendliness, that being nice to people and smiling at them and sharing a brief greeting at church or at the grocery store, that that's all that goes into love. And look, friendliness is a good place to start for love, right? It's better than unfriendliness, for sure. But there's a problem with treating love just as friendliness. And that's that it, it's something that then we can just push to the margins of our lives. It doesn't ask anything from us. We, in the modern world, have busy lives. They're full of activities and our children's activities, and our grandchildren's activities, and we have our work, and our community events, and our time at the gym, and family time at home, and the couple friends that we have, and the hours we spend watching TV, and friendliness can make peace with all of those busy lives. It doesn't ask us to change anything about them, but love can't. I don't know if you've ever noticed this about Jesus, but one of the things he does over and over is to make time for people. He's in this house, and he's speaking, and there's all these crowds, and he's doing this stuff. And some people lower this man who's paralyzed through the ceiling, and he stops everything, and he sits down and talks to this guy and heals him. Jesus 
is, is standing in front of this massive crowd of people preaching this sermon, and these little children come up to him, and he stops what he's doing, and he sits down and sets them on his lap and talks with them. Jesus is, is walking down the road on the way to go heal this one guy, and another woman, desperate for healing herself, touches the hem of his cloak, and he stops and has a conversation with her and talks to her about God's love. That that's love for Jesus, putting people first, stopping and talking to them and listening to them and being with them, even though he's got a really busy ministry schedule too. People are inconvenient, at least if you're going to love them. Love requires really getting to know someone. It requires spending time with them. It requires listening to them and then listening some more. And, and all of that takes more time than just seeing someone at the grocery store or in fellowship hour at Sunday morning. Concretely, here's what that means to put that kind of love in practice in our lives. It looks like making space in our time for people. It, it means maybe being a little less involved and less busy with the things that modern life fills our schedules with in order to be more involved in the lives of the people that God has placed around us. So invite someone over for dinner. Um, invite them into your home and ask them some questions about themselves and about their lives and their loves and their passions and share those things about yourself with them. If we're going to be known for love as a church, that's what we have to do. And not just with the few people we know, but with people who need it. People who are aching and lonely and desperate for that kind of loving contact and relationship. It's only as we make space for people in our lives that we can begin to truly be known for our love. So Paul prays for the church in Colossae, and he gives thanks in praying for their growth in faith and love. But there's one more thing he wants to add to that equation. And in some ways, it's the most important of the things that he prays for in this prayer. Faith and love are what we're being called to do as the church. Both of them, for Paul, are built on a foundation of our hope. He prays the church would be known for our hope. In verse 5, Paul tells us that our faith and our love both come from somewhere. They spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel. They spring, they arise, they are created by a hope that we have stored up in heaven and proclaimed in the gospel. Since we're going to be spending a lot of time together in the coming years, let me put forward an idea that I'm going to return to often. I think it's one of the big ideas of Christianity. And that idea, as you'll sometimes hear me say it um, in unguarded moments, is that in Christianity, the indicatives empower the imperatives, which means, in normal English, that what, we, that what, we, um, what is true of us is meant to come before the things that we're supposed to do. What is true of us comes before what we do. In religion, in worldly religion, that order is switched. First, you are supposed to do stuff. You're supposed to follow some rules and keep some laws and observe some rituals. And if you do those things, then, then, then you get acceptance and belonging. You get yourself good enough and disciplined enough and together enough, and then you get welcomed by God. And I know there's plenty of times that the church behaves that way and talks that way. But that is the opposite of what Scripture teaches. It is the opposite of Christianity. For Paul, the starting place for the Colossians is their hope that they heard in the gospel. 
Look at verse 6. What did they hear about in the gospel? What was it that they believed and hoped in? It says it right there at the end of that verse. It is God's grace. Understanding the gospel. Hoping in it means understanding God's grace. The same thing is true in verse 12. We can talk about faith and love, and we might think that 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 was the way that the Colossians were supposed to earn something, of earning God's favor and welcome, but that isn't the case. Paul says in verse 12, the Colossians are being called to give joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Has qualified you. The thing causing the Colossians to have faith and love, the thing that will keep it growing up among them, is that God has already qualified them for an inheritance. He has already made them his holy people. And he has already stored up a place for them in the kingdom of light. In Christianity, the gospel of grace always comes first. It is what is true of us. And that's a core theme of the book of Colossians and of the whole Bible, that God makes things true of us, welcome and belonging and forgiveness and holiness, and that it is hoping in what God has already done for us and already given us that shapes and forms us as Christians, never the opposite. So what does that mean for us as a church? I think it means that we need to keep the hope of the gospel as the thing that colors everything we do. That if there is one thing we want to be known for more than anything else, it is to be known as a people who believe that gospel. A people characterized by grace and forgiveness and repentance and hope. So that means that we need to be a community that welcomes people who are broken by sin. Broken by it. A community who welcomes people with aching hearts and laundry lists of mistakes. We need to be a community that embraces those people first and offers them Jesus second and doesn't put any requirements of togetherness or respectability or obedience on either of those things. And that doesn't mean that we don't acknowledge the call of God to obedience and holiness. It doesn't mean that we don't pretend that we pretend like sin isn't sin, but the message of sin in scripture always exists in the context of God's grace. It's supposed to make God's grace more, not less. The gospel is to look someone in the eye and say, look, you are a mess. You are sinful. You're probably a lot worse than you even realize, but God's grace is greater than you can imagine. And even more than how we treat people that come in, that's how we need to learn to treat each other and ourselves. We need to look at each other and ourselves through that lens of the gospel. We need to be a community that is quick to acknowledge our own sin and brokenness, who looks in the mirror and says that same thing, that you are a mess, you are sinful, and you're probably a lot worse than you even realize. Because seriously, we are. I mean, I am a mess. I know we're in kind of this honeymoon phase and as a church where, where my faults are going to be easy to overlook. And that's fine. That doesn't need to stop. But, um, <laughs> but I promise you that there is sin deep down in me too. Anger and selfishness and thoughtlessness and pride. And there's sin in each one of you as well. We need to acknowledge that sin because more than that, We need to be a community that celebrates the grace of God together. That God loves us. 
And he has welcomed us and qualified us to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Not because he doesn't know about our sin or because we've managed to cover it up or deal with it sufficiently. He does it because of the work of Jesus and because he has chosen to make sinners like us his children and because he loves us and that it is in acknowledging our sin and experiencing that grace of God and putting our hope in that gospel that then we can begin to grow in the faith of Jesus Christ and in love for each other. That is the hope of the gospel, that we get God and heaven and acceptance and welcome all because of the gracious work of salvation that we have in Christ. And that's why we need to grow up in the faith, because the whole system of this world is built in the opposite direction. And the only way to believe that gospel in the face of that system of the world is by growing in the story and creed of Christianity. And that is why we need to love each other, Because God has so loved us. So what else are we supposed to do? These are the things. Our faith and our love and the hope that lies beneath both of those that I pray that we grow in as having characterized us as a church. Those are the things that we should all pray that we are known for more deeply than anything else that people might notice. Or as we close, let me try to put that whole idea to you a different way. I've been married now for almost nine years, which I realize makes me a novice compared to a lot of you, but, um, but I've learned a few things in those nine years. Um, one of the things I've noticed is that there's all this stuff that goes into marriage, right? There's bills that you have to pay and budgets that you have to set and the yard has to get mowed and you have to make decisions about how you're going to raise your kids. Um, and all of that stuff is important. But if that is all that marriage was, I don't know how long I would last, The thing about marriage is that beyond and before all of that, there's this person that I'm in relationship with, this beautiful woman that I'm married to, and I'm being called to get to know this person and discover and seek out her heart and to love this person and serve her and treasure her. I'm being called to live life united to this person, to be one flesh, to hold her close and belong to her, that those are the foundational things of marriage. And that it is within that context that all the other things make sense. They're all outworkings of that union and love. In fact, as I grow closer to my wife and know her more and love her more, those other parts of marriage become bearable and sometimes even pleasurable because they're a part of being married to Elizabeth. The church is the same way. There are all kinds of things that go into life together programs to run, and music to practice, and Sunday worship to organize, and all of that. But those things, they're important, but they will only make sense if they're outworkings of our union and love with our Savior. Indeed, our ability to do them actually grows when we understand them as part of a deeper communion that we live out with God. So may this be our prayer, that as a church, we would grow and work, um, as we grow and work in those external things that we have to do, that we would grow and work even more to make our ultimate aim being deeper in that foundation, in faith and in love and in hope. May that be what we're known for, and may that be what we truly are. Let me pray for us. Our God and Father, Lord, you sent Jesus Christ as a great sacrifice for our sins. 
We are your children because of his work. We are welcomed in to your people because of him. May we stake our hope in him. And so grow um, in faith and belief in the truths that you teach us about and through him. And so grow in love for one another. May these be the things that we are known for as a church. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You'd stand in, we're going to sing hymn number 380, Living for Jesus, a Life that is True.
Amen. It's so good to worship with you all. Looking forward to many, many more opportunities to do so in the future. So good to celebrate the graduates if you're by one of them. Make sure to greet and congratulate them on surviving the, you know, the, the hard challenge of high school and making it through. Um, greet all of each other as well. We're all family here, and it's a hard world out there, so extend Christ's welcome to each other. And I look forward to getting the chance to extend that welcome to at least some of you as well. But now go with the blessing of God. May the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you his peace now and forever. Amen.